Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've been blessed in many ways, but one blessing was a physio who um, is in our community who showed me that with these crutches, you can leave them like that, and they stand up straight. I mean, how's this for a gift, eh? Just, just pops in there. So next time you break your leg, <laughs> don't, don't break your leg, but if it happens... Uh, you too can, can uh, use that nifty trick instead of having them slide all over the place. Um, let me tell you the story, because I'm sure you're fascinated. Like, what, was it a rodeo? They heard the vision. I, I basically was an idiot. That's the summary. I chose to, to uh, balance on a pipe, and I thought the ground was a lot closer than it was. It wasn't, and I just kept stretching, trying to find the ground. You know, when you're like looking, looking for that, at, that, uh, that elusive ground, and I uh, didn't find it until I found it, um, which is when I broke my, my tibia and my, um, uh, my fibia and my tibia. Um, but don't, please, don't have any sympathy for me. The real pain is, um, is experienced by my wife. She is now having to do so much more uh, than normal. I'm trying to make myself small around the house, you know, like small requests, like, water, please, I haven't drunk in days, uh, struggling here. Um, but still, I'm adding to her load. And then to make it even worse, on Mother's Day, Mother's Day, I say, hey, I can't preach. I'm, I'm on heavy opioid drugs here. Who knows what I would say? Please, could you step in and preach? So imagine on Mother's Day, she had the gift of preaching three times. It's been, it's, it's been her, her burden to bear. So thank you, Leanne. Sincerely. Guys, um, something you might not know about me is I, I love learning. It's uh, on all the personality things you, you pick up on. And I'm learning things as I've broken my leg here. I'm learning that community matters, that being vulnerable sometimes isn't a bad thing because then you actually create space for people to step in and just bless you. And so in all honesty, um, you sometimes ask, why God, why? But a better question sometimes is, God, what do you want me to know while I'm going through this? What do you want me to know? And I'm, I'm learning lots about community and the truth that um, you know, there's, there's a great journey towards independence. That's great. I'm glad I'm independent. But there's even a better journey towards interdependence. Uh, learning to, to um, let people's strengths cover your weaknesses. And so I'm, I'm learning lots as we go along. Um, I'm also learning um, in that I'm getting time to read. And one of the things I love doing, I left UCT uh, five years ago. Uh, the Chartered Accountant Stream is what I used to lecture. But I still stay in touch with some of my colleagues. And one, Prof. Everingham. Prof. Everingham was one of the reasons I came back to UCT, a godly man. He fought apartheid politically when he was um, a lecturer, came back. Uh, he's involved in the Anglican Church, marvelous man. And something else that makes him marvelous is he subscribes to The Economist, which is an expensive publication. And so what happens is we meet up two or three times a year, and he comes with all his economists, and he drops them off with me like, like a thud. And so I've been making my way through these economists. And it can get a bit confusing when you're on drugs. And so you don't know, have I read this? Have I not read this? What's going on? And you know what my trick is? The one thing I will always know if I've read this economist or not is I will turn to the obituary. I've got a picture up there. Um, it's the last page. And it kind of summarizes lives of significance. Some people you've never heard of, but yet what they did turned history. I often wonder, what, what, is, what are the criteria that the economists use to, to put a, a life in that back page? And I'll always know, if I've read it, then I know I've read The Economist, because I will always look there. I've always been fascinated by it. I remember exploring as a young kid in my parents' library, and they had a thick book called The Hundred Great Lives. And I remember just pouring over it, thinking, why are these people here? I wonder who was 101. I wonder what it is to live a life of significance. I've especially been thinking about this as um, the news, I don't know if you've heard, but yesterday of, of Tim Keller's passing. 
pastor who's shaped my life tremendously, who've the last three years been um, experiencing pancreatic cancer, and yesterday uh, graduated on to, to be with the father. Tim Keller personally impacted my life tremendously. We went on honeymoon, and my sister gave us an iPod. Do you remember those? Uh, it had 150 of his sermons on it, and we went around backpacking um, Thailand and the Philippines, listening to these sermons as a newly married couple. Corporately, a common ground story has been shaped by the gospel, that someone brought a, a kind of reminder, we're more sinful than we imagined, but we're more loved than we ever expected, which means we're humble because nothing qualifies us for God's goodness, but we're confident because God chose us and God has redeemed us. That shaped us as a church. We had the privilege of having him in 2010 come to Common Ground. I got to meet him. I got to tell him that he was on honeymoon with me. Just looked at me, kind of, okay, where are you going with this, you know? And, um, and, and just in many ways, I would say he, he's pastored many pastors. And I think he's pastored many people in this room. And uh, I'm, I'm stirred that, that we as a community should honor him now. And at the same time, in our hearts, go, hey, what was it that made his life significant? What was it that meant that even though we might never have met him, or when we did, we embarrassed ourselves with a silly story, what was it that, that seemed to stretch out across cultures and generations and, and allow us to be impacted? And there's another life of significance, another life of significance, which is that of Nehemiah. And we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 1 together today. In fact, we're going to spend a lot of time in the next few weeks looking at this life of significance. And chapter one, I'm, I'm entitling Holy Ambition. I want to speak to you about someone who had, an, had a dream, who had ambition, but it wasn't selfish ambition. It was holy ambition. And that makes all the difference. We sat um, on Thursday morning talking about the five dysfunctions of team. And, we, and at the end, I kind of said, hey, one of the things you might have noticed in your business life is you can be ambitious and you can go for it. And sometimes you expect the church to tell you, no, naughty, don't do that. Don't do that. You shouldn't be that. You should, you should be with the family or you should be in community things or you should be doing this in the church. Don't be ambitious in the marketplace. But yet when we study scripture, we actually see that there is a lot of selfish ambition, which will shipwreck lives, yes, but there is an alternative and it's not zero ambition or lack of ambition. The alternative is holy ambition. And Nehemiah, I think, shows us what that looks like. Tim Keller, I think, also shows us what that looks like. See, we're going to flash, I don't want to flash too far forward, but Nehemiah, when we find him now, is full of, full of impact. He's full of influence. He's at the right hand of the ruler. He's living a comfortable life. He's the cupbearer, which means that he sips the wine to make sure it's safe for the king. And yet, he's going to give all that up, and he's going to sign up for an ambitious mission of rebuilding a city. He's going to have to demonstrate incredible leadership skills, and he's going to make it happen. And that's why most churches, when we, uh, pastors, when we look at Nehemiah, we want to emphasize a building project that's coming up, like, look, Nehemiah built. We're about to build, right? Or we say, leadership skills. I mean, this is a masterclass. Look at the leadership skills. And it includes all of that stuff, but we don't have a building project, and we're not just going to focus on his leadership skills. We want to actually say, God, teach us as Capetonians today, as people in Seapoint gathered this morning, what it would look like to live a life of holy ambition. And as Capetonians, I think we, we've looked at all those Joe Burgers that are like ambitious and hunting the bucks, and we've gone, you guys need to relax. Come down to Cape Town, take the 30% pay cut, but you get an ocean, you get a mountain, you get weekends away. We like to work hard, but we also play hard. And we're concerned about our health. Vitamin D from the sunshine. 
You know, we, we have got it right, Joe Burgers. You guys can learn from us. Our ambitions are there, but our ambitions perhaps are a little smaller than what God would have for us. And, and I hope we'd be shaken out of our little Capetonian comfort bubbles a little bit and say, God, man, I, I've got one, one shot at this, and I want to I learn from Nehemiah. So, uh, introduction to Nehemiah. If we read chapter one, it says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that's the head of Babylon. So he didn't come with the first wave of exiles with Zerubbabel. He didn't even come with the second wave of exiles under Ezra. He's, he's going to come only in the third wave. He has got a very comfortable position, as I said. He's the cup bearer to the king. He has an important role of trust. Anything that passes onto the king's lips has the potential to poison him. And so he is the one that sips it. I know that sounds totally outdated, but then you read about the Eskom CEO and you're like, wait a second, <laughs> maybe he needed a cupbearer. You know, the, these things, uh, unfortunately, when there's power involved, people, people um, need those that they trust next door. So he's, a, he's at the right hand of the king. He's trusted. And yet he's going to give all that up a life of comfort. He was working hard and playing hard. You know, he was living the Cape Town dream, and yet he chose to give that up. And finally, before we read the chapter, a word of, um, on, chronolog uh, on, on, on timing. When you look at the Bible, Nehemiah's not the last book of the Old Testament, but when you study when the books were written, you'll find that Nehemiah actually is the last one written. It's the one that scholars agree would be the last book that kind of captures things as they stand before Jesus comes. And so he's going to be rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, and in a couple of hundred years' time, Jesus is going to be riding in on a donkey into that very city. And so it's fascinating that a couple of hundred years of silence are about to come as we wait for the coming Messiah, but Nehemiah was crucial at setting the stage for that homecoming. Okay, so let's get into it. Nehemiah chapter 1, let's read together. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, our father's house, have sinned. Now, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. 
and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. That's God's word to us this morning. Nehemiah, cupbearer, comfortable life, about to launch into a highly adventurous, ambitious project of rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem. Just notice, Nehemiah, as we get introduced to him, is not a priest. He's not a leader in the church. He's a government official. He's in the marketplace. He's, he's someone who, it's not quite his obituary we're reading here, but it's, it's a life of significance that's recorded in this book. And what I want to do is just have a look at this chapter, and in a way, pick up just four moments, four significant moments that I think would help all of us. If we're sitting here today and we're saying, yeah, I'm probably a little bit dissatisfied with my life. If I'm honest, I'm ambitious, but maybe I'm ambitious in the wrong areas. Or maybe I've, I'm a little lukewarm, I'm a bit, a bit undecided. And, and maybe you want to learn from Nehemiah's life. I think there are four things we can learn from him from this first chapter. And just so you know, I've got the privilege of preaching over the first six chapters of Nehemiah, and I'm really excited to be diving into all of them and linking them all together. And so, so let's dive into this particular chapter and learn from it. The first thing I would say around holy ambition that we can learn from Nehemiah is this, that, that it's important to ask the right questions. Ask the right questions. Be curious about the right things. We pick that up when, when Nehemiah's at the right hand of uh, the king in Susa the citadel, and suddenly one of his brothers comes back from Judah. They've made that, you know, thousand mile journey up. And notice, I asked them, concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So Nehemiah's in the mix, and notice what he does is he questions the visiting party about how things are going. In his mind, he was thinking, Zerubbabel, Ezra, this place must be pumping. Tell me all about it. Is it like a Ranyazakh city market every Saturday? I mean, are people just flowing? I mean, is this place humming? He's thinking, whoo, I, I, I want a good report. But what does he hear? He hears the exact opposite. He hears that they're in great trouble and shame. The walls are broken. The gates are destroyed. But notice where his attention is focused. His attention is on God's people and God's covenant, his promise, and on the expectation that heaven is available now, that the kingdom can come now, that there's a group of people that God's promised to bless so that they can be a blessing. So that's what's in his mind. And so he's asking about it. He's looking for it. And we'll get to the fact that he doesn't see it and he's distraught about it. But please, let's not lose the fact that he was curious about it first and he asked questions about it. Look throughout scripture, you'll see the same thing in lives of significance. Moses, he's raised in an Egyptian palace. He's, he's got a life of absolute luxury. And yet he's looking at the Israelite slaves going, this isn't what, this isn't what God promised. This isn't, what thing, this isn't how things should be. And that's where he focused his attention. I think of Joseph as well, who, who years earlier had kind of got the family into Egypt and, and who kind of had, had thought about his, his brothers and his father and the famine and kind of had, had already sort of thinking about what, what would happen when, when, when the perfect storm of, of famine came. There's throughout scripture, just a bunch of people who always would say, man, but I thought God had something else in mind. And they were curious about that and interested in that. It's massively important in our lives to ask regularly the question, what am I curious about? What am I interested in? There are many things, good things that we can be interested in. Like, did you get Stormer, Stormer's tickets to the final? You know, uh, How are the grandkids doing? Um, how's business? I mean, these are all good things to be interested in. 
But I hope there's underlying all of it, just this reservoir of desire to go, God, where are you at work? What do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? Because what gets your attention gets your affection. What gets your attention gets your affection. And if you study lives of people who've, who've made an impact, they're paying attention to the right things. Secondly, after asking the right questions, if the answers come back and they're not favorable, if the answers come back and go, it is not well with the world, it is not well with my soul, there's a temptation to go, oh, I shouldn't have asked the question. <laughs> like, awkward moment. You're supposed to say, fine, and move on. You haven't. Now what do I do? You see, what Nehemiah did when he heard it is he sat with the burden. He didn't superficially go, well, God's good, persevere, you know, like some kind of knee-jerk, like all things work for good, you know. He didn't, he didn't do that. Neither did he get so convoluted and complicated that he was like, oh, whoa, how am I going to solve this? And then he ends up doing nothing because it's analysis by paralysis. He does something else. He, he pushes through. But the first thing he does is he, is he sits with the burden. He feels it. Do you see it there in verse 4? As soon as I heard these words, I sat down. I can relate. I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I mean, that doesn't look like a life of significance. I mean, that doesn't look like holy ambition at first reading. It looks like someone going, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. This is, this is sore. This is painful. I think of people in this room, uh, sometimes their closest family relationships, broken through different reasons. And, you, and you're trying to fix them and you're trying to, and it actually, quite frankly, hurts to sit with the burden. It hurts to sit with the betrayal. Perhaps in a business context, you, you had your company stolen from you. I mean, all kinds of different stories and people in this room where it hurts. It's, it, it is painful to sit with it. I don't, I don't naturally feel like sitting with pain. I don't like feeling a burden. But yet, if you look at lives of significance, right here in Nehemiah is doing it. Last week, we saw Ezra doing it. Remember the Mother's Day message where the women and children were sent away? Highly memorable. Ezra grieving, pulling out his hair, not something I'd advise. Lying and weeping. Again, we can go back to Joseph with his brothers before him, weeping. We think of Moses weeping. We think of Jesus looking at this very city of Jerusalem that's about to get rebuilt and saying, that Jesus wept and, and that he almost longed, like a mother hen would long to collect its, its chicks around it, that that's how Christ felt about the people who had wandered away from him. See, a life of significance and a life of holy ambition isn't a life devoid of tears. It's not a life devoid of hardship. And maybe a lie right now, as you feel a burden in your life and as you feel the burden acutely, the lie that could come over you is, Oh, you see, you're obviously not doing God's will. You're obviously not connected to God. I mean, you call yourself a Christian, but now you're going through this hard time. That can't be true of you. But if you, if you look at Nehemiah, you look at Ezra, you look at Moses, you look at Joseph, you look throughout Scripture, Jesus, you'll see lives of significance are often full of tears, full of tears. See, I think what can happen when the gap opens up between what we want to see coming of the eternity in our hearts, of the kingdom, God, that's, what, that's how life should be, and then we see how life really is, that gap, that gap creates a holy discontent in our hearts, a holy discontent that makes us feel the burden. I often um, heard the phrase, oh, they're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Have you heard that before? Oh, they're so heavenly minded, they're always thinking about God, they're no earthly good. I just don't think that can be true. Because to be heavenly minded is to be going, God, but that's how it should be, and we're not there, and, and I, I long for that, and I long to see that happen. And, and so I can't go through life kind of 
happy with where things are in Cape Town and Seaport now because I, I, I know there's something better. That to be made in your image as men and women, there's, there's eternity in our hearts and I, I long to see that come in. And it's a burden, quite frankly, to feel it now. And I do want to potentially numb myself through entertainment and activities. And, you know, in my case, it was opioids for 10 days. They worked magnificently. I'm no longer on them, I'll encourage you to hear. But here's the thing. Numbing it won't make that desire and that holy discontent go away because we're made by God in his image and we long to see his kingdom come. So my question for you this morning is what burden do you sometimes feel and quite frankly you hope to shrug off? What is it in your life that God's kind of put his finger on and said, "Ah, that doesn't feel right? We sang the lyrics of a song um, last week, break my heart for what breaks yours. Break my heart for what breaks yours. That's, that's kind of what we're trying to do when we sing this. Say, God, what is it that you've placed, particularly for me, as just something obvious that I'm discontent about, that I want to see change coming? Perhaps that's your contribution. Your life of significance can be lived out there. Examples in this community of people working in the education field saying, it's just not right that for 12 years, kids in South Africa go to school and they think they're getting an education, but they're not. They're not. They're just getting babysat and they don't have the skills when they come out to really make a difference. And they're passionate about changing that. They're people that are passionate about getting low-cost Wi-Fi access out there so that people can be educated on their mobile devices and smartphones. People in this community passionate about job creation, our paradigm shift team that's going to be doing its expo next week and was in touch with the local ward councillor and she gave quite exciting ideas around joining into Greenpoint Market that's getting restarted and getting some of our entrepreneurs as part of that. And he's like, yeah, that's obvious. It's going to get restarted in spring and some of our entrepreneurs could be there at the tables. I think of people in public health care, private health care, but just basically any health care going, we need to see people healed and restored and systems put in place. And I think all of us, hopefully, just that holy discontent in our hearts, saying, we, want to, we want people to know God. We want them to be restored to purpose. We want them to see the possibility of their life, being made in the image of God. Yeah, we have all walked away. But if we turn and we, and we stop and we, and we have an opportunity, we want to tell people about God's goodness and his love for them. So do we sit with the burden? Can you take time out to sit with the burden? What is it? What is it that you've always felt discontent about? A life of significance could be sitting on the other side of this. Uh, by the way, um, Nehemiah sits for four months in this place before he takes action, which is chapter two. For four months, he just really makes sure, God, is this of you? Is it a holy ambition? Is it selfish ambition? And he fasts and he hears from God. You see, here's, here's what something I do. I see a gap between God's kingdom and where things are at, and I often want to fill it with me and my solutions, and I want to help people, and then I hope at the end I can turn to God and say, God, aren't you impressed? <laughs> aren't you, you going to put me up the order? Can I sit next to Tim Keller in heaven, like given, given what I just pulled off? And you see, that's to get it precisely the wrong way around we've got to appreciate is who God is and his kindness and his mercy and the fact that he loves us before we've done anything. He loves us. And out of that place of understanding his grace and his mercy, we then as whole people can go out and help other people. And it's not about us anymore. And it's, it's about serving others. And, and that holy discontent is not about us trying to get in God's good books, but it's about us serving God and bringing others into relationship with him. So we're asking the right questions. Nehemiah would teach us to do that. When the answers come back and they're unfavorable, we sit, we sit with the burden. And then I suggest we pray to God. 
You pray to God. That's what, that's what um, Nehemiah does in verse five. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. This again is not maybe what you think of when you think of significant life. You don't think like the person who's gonna make it is the person who goes, I can't make it. <laughs> I need God. Like I, I don't have what it takes. The project of going back to Jerusalem is not working out. Wave after wave is gone, but yet they're still distraught. God, I need you. He goes straight to the source of God and he prays. Ezra did the same last week at the end of the book. He did the exact same thing. Having pulled out his hair and grieved, he goes to God and he says, God, you, I need you. You're the source. 65% of this first chapter is actually the prayer that, that is, is recorded here. And throughout this book, at 11 different times, Nehemiah is going to pray. And remember, he's not a priest. He's a government official. He's, he's someone who's doing life aware that even if he isn't in paid ministry, he needs to be connected to God and to be hearing from God. And in life groups this week, I'd love us to just break down this prayer. I don't have time to do it fully this morning, but I'd love us in life groups just to sit down and say, what, what was happening here? How does, how, does this, how does this break down? And that we'd learn as a people throughout the series, not just how to rebuild walls and how to do leadership stuff, but in particular, we'd learn how to connect with God when the burden of life seems overwhelming. Here are a couple of things I would point out. Remember I said your attention gets, gets to be very important because it determines your affection, your heart. Your heart follows what you're paying attention to. Well, notice who Nehemiah pays attention to. He pays attention to God. Right at the start of the prayer, you read it there, right? He says, you are the God of heaven. You are great and awesome. You keep covenant. You're full of steadfast love. He doesn't start with himself and what he can do for God. He starts with God and recognizes what that means about himself. We often just reverse the order. I reverse the order. I, I think, what can I do? And the bits that I can't do, that's the time I'll pray to God. Okay, God, bit stuck here. Now I'm gonna pray. But right at the start here, he says, no, 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 I, I need God throughout this journey. Dick Lucas uh, says that the Bible is for us, but not immediately about us. And so when we read someone like Nehemiah, we can think, oh, I'm gonna ask questions, I'm gonna get a burden, I'm gonna pray. But actually what, what I hope we've seen here is that Nehemiah would never have been Nehemiah until, unless he'd seen who God was and then lived a life in response to that. So we see him paying attention to God. You then see confession. You'll notice that he says, we have acted very corruptly against you. He kind, of, he kind of at some point says, I, you know, I and my family have sinned against you. You can read the prayer. He, he gets into confession. He gets vulnerable. He declares bankruptcy on a life apart from God. Can I tell you, if you, like me, want to prove to God that you're worthy, that you want to close the gap when you see, when you see one present itself, confession becomes the hardest thing to do because it's when you have to say to God, God, I, I actually haven't been able to do this. If, if, if the driving mechanism of your heart is, God, look, I'm doing all this stuff for you, when you fall short, it's very hard to get into God's presence and say, God, I've fallen short because you're confessing away the record you hope that will establish God's love and favor. But when God's love and favor is clear to you and his goodness and mercy is clear to you and his covenant and promises are clear to you, you can, like Nehemiah, say, God, I need you. I'm struggling with, you, with these things. I need your grace. He pays attention to God. He confesses his need for God. 
And then notice he prays the promises of God. Do you see in verse eight? I don't know if it's able to, I think it's two slides on from here. In verse eight, um, he says, remember the word that you commanded your servants Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the people. So that's what happened. That's why they're in Babylon. That's why he's in Babylon. But, the greatest word in scripture, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell with them. Yes, they've been scattered, but God has promised to bring them home and to be there with them. He prays the promises of God. He remembers Moses and Exodus. He remembers the periods of unfaithfulness throughout history. And throughout all of that, God has redeemed his people. And so he prays those promises. And then finally, he, he just intercedes on behalf of others. He says, God, please give favor to your servant. Give favor to the people back in Jerusalem. I want to see this situation changed. So he's prayed. He said, God, I, I need you. I want to live a life of significance, not for my own gain, but because I know you're good and I know your promises are good and I wanna, I wanna see your kingdom come. I think of Jesus when he came, it's the most incredible thing to followers. Uh, people like you and I, he said, hey, if, if you're weary, if you're tired, come to me and I'm not gonna give you a mattress. I'm gonna give you a yoke. I'm gonna partner with you, but that yoke's gonna be easy and that burden that you feel right now, that burden, that discontent, those relationships that are broken, that sense of disconnect between how it should be and how it is, that burden which is so heavy on you, if you give it to me, it'll become light. For I am gentle and lowly. I am kind and accessible. Come learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace, of what it means to be made in the image of God. A life of significance might never be recorded by The Economist, but it can be experienced by each and every one of us as we connect in to Jesus' promise and we believe in and act upon it. Holy ambition is to ask the right questions, it's to sit with the burden, it's to pray to God, and then it's to take the first step, it's to act. Come back next week, because that's when we'll see the first step getting taken in chapter two. But what we are able to assert right now is that Nehemiah does leave the comfortable life of cupbearing. He does leave the capital of Susa. He acts, he goes, he's stirred, and he will, will take up the action next week. He ultimately does live a life of significance. He pays attention to the right things. He carries that burden, he's stirred by it, and he acts upon it. But there's more to, to life than just leaving this morning going, wow, Nehemiah, I want to be like him. Because Nehemiah is a, is a whisper, is a hint, is a shadow of, of the one who would come back to Jerusalem, who would enter the very walls that Nehemiah rebuilt. Jesus Christ. Our attention must shift to him. Because here's the deal. Jesus was at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He was the cupbearer, <laughs> so to speak. He had all authority. He was comfortable and had been for all eternity. And Jesus also heard news that broke his heart. He heard about those who were made in his image, who had wandered away, who'd rebelled, who'd believed a lie that God wasn't good and that God couldn't couldn't be trusted, and so had taken things into their own hands. And Jesus heard about that burden, but he didn't just go, oh, well, you know, it happens. It is what it is. Jesus was stirred by that burden to take action. And he came to rescue us. 
He came to this earth as a human, and he, and he ultimately carried that burden all the way to the cross. The burden of all our sins that had separated us from God were placed on him. And he died on that Easter Friday, but in resurrection glory was raised so that the life that he has demonstrated can be given to us. His righteousness replaces our sin. News that broke his heart drew him to act. And ultimately, when he did act, he didn't just rebuild the walls of our lives in a sense of a mild renovation. It would be better described as he took dead lives and made them alive. And what is Jesus doing now? What does scripture tell us? Leanne actually read it from Hebrews. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. See, Nehemiah prayed for that rebellious people of Israel. <laughs> he prayed for them. Guess what Jesus is doing now? He's praying for you and I. And he's saying, Father, look at what I've done. Look at my record. See them as you see me. Welcome them as you welcome me. Make my record their record. He intercedes for us. When we feel that burden on our lives, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel like there's, there's no life of significance that's promised for any of us, know that Christ is interceding for you. He's carried your burden, and he continues to intercede for you. We, we're not going to sing a song of response. We're going we're gonna to have a moment now of praying, and this prayer is based on what we've unpacked together from the life of Nehemiah. So can I join you? I invite you to, to pray now as we respond together.